0: So again, welcome to today's uh, Sutta class, half Sutta, half Ajahn Brahm. Because <laughs> it's nice to give some context to the Suttas and also to explain some of the Suttas. That's where in Buddhism we have the Suttas and they're all really well printed. They've got all sorts of different translations and as far as I'm concerned, there is no, uh, best translation or best rendering. And that's one of the reasons why, that you find the translation will change over the years. So, you know, what I've written here, you know, translations from the suttas, you know, it will actually change over many years. And the PJ was just asking me, are you ever going to publish this? I'll just leave it in manuscript. And I said yes. First time I said that. It was because there was this uh, people in Hong Kong asked me first of all. And they said, you know, can you publish this? And I thought for the first time, well, why not? It's not perfect. As soon as I published it, I will disagree with it. <laughs> because you always can cons- see different words which are more useful, more inspiring, and more accurate, but more than the words, as I said in the first talk I gave on this, you translate phrases and sentences. I never said this at the time, but you've heard this before, that when many people learn English for the first time and it's not their mother tongue, and they heard these weird phrases, it was raining cats and dogs. And if you translated it into, say, Chinese, it would be absolutely ridiculous what you're saying. And people would be thinking, you can't say that. Have you ever seen a dog or a cat coming from the sky during a rainstorm? It's an idiom. So we translate the sentence or the phrase you say it was just raining heavily, and that would be the correct translation. And a lot of the times, people do use idioms, even the Buddha used idioms. So you've got to understand you know, exactly what he meant to say. And that gives the opportunity for people to translate uh, really accurately, but also just very misleadingly, so they may get it wrong. But the nice thing about the suttas, when you read the whole lot, they're so consistent. Pieces are repeated in so many different places. So because they're repeated in so many different places, you can get an understanding of what must be the true meaning of these ideas. So anyway, uh, because this is not just for intellectual knowledge, but it's to help the meditation, and I always think the meditation is the most important, because in the medit-, well, actually, I'll, I'll point it out later on, but in the meditation, you're seeing things as they really are. They always used to say, it was a simile I heard years ago, and when I was giving a talk over in South Korea, and with one of the leaders of the Jogja order, it's a Mahayana Zen tradition, and When I was over there, I was really surprised. The master of the Jogje order was saying one of the stories which I tell often. and That was the story of the best way to see the full moon, is to go up into the mountains and find a lake which is perfectly still, where there's no wind, there's no disturbance on the surface of the water, and see the moon as a reflection in the water, that's the most beautiful way. What that means, what it represents, is that when you look at the Dharma, the truth, all these great insights, if you look at those insights and your mind is still restless, even slightly disturbed, it will distort the truth. You won't see what's there, you'll see what you want to see and you'll be in denial of what challenges you too much, you'll block some things out. So you go out, when you get your mind very peaceful until all what we call these hindrances are gone and then when you see, what you see, we see things as they truly are. It's one of the reasons why one of the phrases used by the Buddha again and again and again, <laughs> so, I'll say it in Pali because obviously the Pali is the most accurate we can get to. Samadhi, Pachaya, Yatha, Yana, Dasama. It is the stillness which is the cause for seeing things as they truly are. Yatha, as they really are, Yanadasana, the seeing the wisdom. If the mind is not still, what you see is bent. And a good example of that, just in real life. You know there's on Tuesday evenings, we used to go to a, a a town quite close by Armadale, and we had a group there, the Armadale group. It's still going, but it meets on YouTube now or on zoom or something. And one day, one of the people in the Armadale group, you know, said, "You better talk to this lady. She's really in big trouble." So of course, you know, you try the best to be compassionate. What was her problem? Her problem. This was many years ago. That she'd come home from work, and the police and child protection services were there at the school. They had found out that her two children were being abused by her husband. And of course, you know straight, first of all, why couldn't she see that? You now the signs were there, but as a mother, you know you start to, to think that this was the guy I chose, the guy I' married. this can't be happening. And you get in denial of what the teachers in school saw so clearly. And it was true. So sometimes you can see how we can bend the truth into a lot of uh, problems for everybody. Fortunately, the, you know, because of being a part of our meditation group, that she did have other means of, of understanding what was going on and she dealt with it really well. For many years she kept in contact with me, her children did very well at school, graduated, had boyfriends, girlfriends, but she moved to England, so we lost touch that way. But the interesting thing about that experience, that she came to see me and said, Ajahn Brahm, I have actually forgiven him. I'll never want to see him again, but I don't want him to have any more suffering. I know what suffering is like and it's not worth it. When I talk like that to my psychologist, which I have to go and see, that was actually the law, you have free counseling, compulsory. Mm -hmm. And she said, my psychologist says I'm in denial all the time. And she won't let me go until I admit that I hate the guy. But I don't. And so in the end, I wrote a letter to the psycho- psychologist saying, look, it's really wonderful to be able to forgive. I've known the lady a long time. She actually has forgiven. You may think it's unbelievable. She's done that. And it was true. She was being honest with you. So don't keep trying to force her to, <clears throat> to think she hates the guy. And then after a while, so the psycho- psychologist let her, let her be free. She had come to a reconciliation so quickly, much, greater, much faster than you would expect. That's why the psychologist thought that she was just faking it. <laughs> so sometimes there's different ways of dealing with these things you're in denial. There was another lady which I was counselling, she was dying of lung cancer. She thought it was just hay fever, but it got really bad. She went to take a test and it was lung cancer. She was a very strong lady and so by the time it was diagnosed, there was basically no treatment. So as soon as she found out the diagnosis, she called me I went into the hospital to see her and uh, we discussed the funeral and everything. She was a really good Thai Buddhist and was uh, totally at ease with her upcoming death. And it was really impressive, even a, a free thinking doctor, you know, when she died, said she died with class. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> anyway, when she came, we were uh, discussing her funeral and what to do beforehand and she was saying, please tell the other Thai people you know, in our temple, don't come and see me yet. Please don't, wait till I'm in my coffin dead, they can come and see me as much as they want. <laughs> and then she started laughing. She was sincere, she wasn't just faking it. So anyway, as soon as I finished just you know, talking to her, as I walked out, someone, one of the nurses grabbed me on the shoulder and pulled me into a room and it was actually the matron of this hospital, She's Irish lady and she said, oh, I'm so glad you've come and, come to the hospital To talk to this lady. She's in denial. She's not admitting that she's going to die. I said, Come off it. We've been making all the funeral preparations. And the matron was just so shocked. And he said, Look, you know, she's come to terms, you know, with her, um, her life and her upcoming death, and she's at peace with it. It can be done. Just as an aside, she had these four children who used to come to my Dumber school when they were little kids. And she wasn't a wealthy lady, but my goodness, she was one of the best mothers I've ever seen. The, her son, Herbert, he <laughs> he became a chef. He didn't go to university, but incredibly smart chef. And they have a TV program in Australia called Master Chef. And he won that as a, a layperson, not professional, well, he's a professional chef now. But he's an incredibly good chef. He was working in schools and then up in the Swan Valley, you know, really sort of a top chef. And sometimes he comes to Bolognana to cook for us. <laughs> <laughs> but He's such a nice fellow. I saw him just a few weeks ago. Actually, the whole family just really nice and i just give that to the the mum who was just amazing. He was only about 14 or 15 when his mum died. This is his mother. When I went to see her, when she was, uh, she wasn't sick yet. She had this huge, I don't know if you'd call it queen bed, king bed or emperor bed, but it was huge. It took up the whole room, the whole bedroom. You know, you had to squeeze against the wall to get around to the other side of it. A massive bed. And I said, what's that for? He said, that's for my son. So can he can bring his girlfriend home. And I thought, wow, my mother and father would never allow that. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you're a great mum. Because otherwise, you know, his son would probably have girlfriends and have sex somewhere. But, you know, she said, well, if he's going to have sex somewhere, I know that, why not in my, my house? It's for them. He became a great fellow anyway, the whole family. Anyway, uh, I suppose we're in suitor class, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. I'm going to start. Oh yes, I was finishing off... The, um, that's right. It's over here somewhere. Uh, the Anapanasati Sutta. I only got to the first part. Here we go. Mindfulness of breathing. So I'll just do the first part again, but I won't focus on it too long. That when the in-breath and out-breath are long, you are aware that they are long. When the in-breath and out-breath are short, you're aware that they are short. You don't have to do both, just one is enough. Somebody reminded me today, sometimes you can count the breath if you want to. That's actually the same with knowing it's long or short. Breathing in one, breathing out one, breathing in two, breathing out two. I did this for a while, breathing out three, out three, up to nine. Breathing in nine, out nine, and then go back to one. Breathing in 1, out 1, in 2, out 2, in 3, out 3, up to 8, and then from 1 to 7, 1 to 6, 1 to 5, 1 to 4, 1 to 3. You're paying attention, it's amazing. I never do this anymore. <laughs> breathing in 1, out 1, in 2, out 2, breathing in 1, out 1, and you finish one cycle. One cycle, I think, of 45 breaths. And the reason I don't do it anymore, because sometimes you used to do this in the morning when you were tired and a bit sleepy, and i find out I was doing breathing in 16, out 16, and <laughs> you forgot to stop at 9. <laughs> at least it told me I wasn't really mindful, but after a while I was saying it's doing a bit too much. But you can try that if you like. And... But whatever it is, just to get you in contact with your breathing. Experience the hold of the breath as you breathe in and out, when you learn to calm the breath as you breathe in and out. This is not what you do, it's just what happens, even if you don't have any instructions. Once you start to see the breath, you know, just again, as I said, not just seeing it passing, in, out, in, out, in, out. See from the very beginning to the very end. It actually becomes interesting. And it calms by itself, simply because you don't need so much oxygen. Already some people have said that when they get really deep in meditation, it's like they stop breathing. Ah, I'm gonna die. And I will reassure you, this retreat center has been going for 14, 15 years. Before this, we would teach meditation in other places. Never once, never once have I had anybody die on one of my retreats. Never. I've got a good record (laughs) and I don't (laughs) aim to blemish it at all. You don't die on these retreats. You actually, if you have got any problem, that guy with a tumour in his nose, it usually heals up. And even if you stop breathing, Just let the body stop breathing, let the body be in control, it knows what to do. What usually happens is stop breathing or being aware of any breath. Much longer than usual, you don't put any effort into it, and then the body knows what to do, and it starts breathing again. I trust my body. When it wants to breathe, it breathes. And A lot of time, I don't tell my body what to breathe, how to breathe, you know that a lot of time, I don't pay any attention to my breath, for hours on end, while I'm in bed asleep. <laughs> the breath knows exactly what to do, if it needs a long breath, it beats long breath, short breath, short breath, and I've been pretty healthy all this time because I don't control my breath, I let it happen. And when you relax like that, you find the breath and you become friends and you breathe in just the right amount. So, you don't need to worry if you feel the breath stops. Your job is just to be aware of the breath and let it become delightful, gorgeous, beautiful, soft. That is a sign that the mindfulness is increasing. And I don't know if any of you uh, have actually started experiencing this so far. The, you know, the, the food I mentioned should be more delicious than ever before. Not because uh, the good cooks, but because, you know, your awareness has increased. You pick up more of the tastes. Not just that, but just the seeing nature. Nature is always very beautiful. But when you're mindful after meditation, Wow! First meditation retreat I did do, you know, in those boarding houses. We were allowed to go for a walk for one hour every morning. And when I went for a walk, because it was, you know, my basic university town, but I spent so much time there, I knew my way around. I would walk to the botanical gardens, round the back. It was just very close by, only five minutes. And in one of the back uh, entrances. I just walked in there thinking I'd get some exercise. I never did. There's this most beautiful club of bamboo in the world, was there? And you often notice if you go to museums and see Chinese watercolours, there's always bamboo in it. It's because bamboo can be so delightful, sensuous. Just the way it bends under its own weight and the beautiful, smooth arc of one a uh, piece of bamboo. And even the leaves, they're not gross, they're very narrow and refined. And the whole thing, because it's light, will sway in the wind, like dancing, like, not like a, a hip hop, but more like ballet. Beautiful. And So that first clump of bamboo I saw, wow, and I just couldn't go past it it naturally looked beautiful and fortunately there was a bench close by so I sat down on that because I had enough presence of mind to know if if some policeman or park authorities saw this hairy student (laughs) staring stupidly at this clump of bamboo for about half an hour they would have thought I was on some kind of drug and taking me away. (laughs) Of course, I wasn't on any drug, just my awareness was really strong. So I sat down, when I sat down, I went, no one stopped me. (laughs) And of course, I had to go for breakfast, so I got up and went to breakfast, and I went back there the next day, and the next day, and the next day. It was eight out of the nine days of retreat, I visited the most beautiful clump of bamboo in the world. The other day, I thought I should get some exercise, so I went down the river. But after seeing that most beautiful clump of bamboo, you kind of take it for granted, you think it's always going to be there for you. And so after going back to university, going to lectures and my social life, which was a bit crazy, then I had a free afternoon. And I thought, I'm now going to get on my bicycle and go and visit the most beautiful clump of bamboo in the world. Really excited. I hadn't seen it for a couple of weeks. And I went into the back gate of the botanical gardens and saw that clump of bamboo. I thought, what on earth is beautiful about this? It was dry, desiccated. Bamboo should not be planted in a country like England. It's just too cold. The climate's not right. When I actually saw it, not having been on a meditation, not sort of empowered by meditation. It looked just so ordinary and boring. And again, that kind of shocked me. It only looked beautiful when my mindfulness was strong. That's why I hope this happens to you. In this forest here, if you think it's beautiful the first time you come here, it is beautiful, but nowhere near is beautiful. As when you have a wonderful meditation. Wow, wow, wow. You get a lot of joy out of this, I do anyway. So, (laughs) and even each one of you. After a decent meditation, I'd look at you and wow, such kind people, such good people. You're not supermodels. <laughs> Nevertheless, you can see such beauty in a human being which you never saw before. It's amazing some of the stories you tell me. There's no way I can get angry at you, or deny you, or just um, uh, discriminate against you, or think, well, what have I allowed this person into this retreat for? You see all the goodness and beauty. First, I thought that was just because that's, you know, just uh, making it up but you see that, just like you see the beauty in the bamboo, you see the beauty in human beings, even murderers, there's only two murderers. <laughs> and you actually, you're not making it up anymore, you see a human being in there suffering immensely. And you can see past that suffering into their goodness and that is really amazing. So anyway, That's actually one of the reasons why you should not ask me for marriage counselling. Because I look at your partner and say, what's wrong with him? (laughs) He's a nice guy. You don't live with him. That's true, but all you can see is (laughs) quite a nice guy underneath all of that. Nice girl. How come you, how come you two can't get along? Anyway, let's go back to Anapanasati. So the in-birth and outbirth are long, you were there long. On that occasion, this is actually the Anapanasati this is Anapanasati Sutta, because the Buddha starts it by saying when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is of great fruit and great benefit. It's not just because you can enjoy the food more, or you can see beautiful clumps of bamboo when they're not really beautiful, or what goes in the toilet bowl is just, wow. Have you tried that yet? Honestly? Come and experiment. Take a look. You know what's disgusting about this? Real... And real um, aroma. (laughs) When you, what am I doing? Uh, So when you, that's oh, that's right. Uh, It complete when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated is a great fruit and great benefit. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it completes the four focuses of mindfulness: satipatthana. You know that sometimes you translate that as the four foundations of mindfulness? Why foundations? I prefer using the word focuses of mindfulness because that's what you focus mindfulness on on the body, on experience, on the chitta, the mind, and on the mind objects, especially the important mind objects, uh, like the seven enlightenment factors and uh, the uh, five, um, the five hindrances. So, it's like focuses. A lot of people say, you're not translating properly Ajahn Brahm's it's foundations. Other people might have said that, but you've got the full freedom. Be rebellious. Think for yourself. Once I gave a talk at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. And afterwards, the, uh, the Vice-Chancellor, he was also a theoretical physicist, so I was talking on Buddhism, and he said that oh, was a nice talk, we had tea together afterwards, and uh, I said what's the, the motto of the university? I forget what the motto was, but I said why don't you change that to where everybody thinks the same, nobody thinks at all. And He kind of liked that. That's what universities should be a bit rebellious, just challenging status quo, where everybody thinks the same, nobody thinks at all. Do you understand that? Do you agree with it? If you agree with it, you don't understand it. <laughs> don't just be another Ajahn Brahm clone. <laughs> we said that today, that Oh, I should actually announce to you that uh, tomorrow evening I'm going to have to be in Nolamara giving a talk, so I won't be giving the Q&A tomorrow. So I did twist Ajahn Brahmadi's arm, Ajahn Brahmadi would do the Q&A tomorrow night. And at first someone else said, oh he's just too busy, said, you know, use a clone. And I said, we're monks, we're not supposed to use cologne. <laughs> Thank you for groaning. <laughs> okay, anyway, what's the next? Anapanasati. <laughs> Please apologize, but anyway. Uh, it, it, the four focuses of mindfulness get developed by Anapanasati. In some traditions, Anapanasati is Samatha meditation. And uh, four focuses of mindfulness, Satipatthana, is Vipassana meditation. What the Buddha is saying here is, you're doing both at the same time. You do Anapanasati and it fulfills uh, Satipatthana. It's wonderful to do an efficient way, so you don't have to do an Anapanasati course and then go to a Satipatthana course. You do all the same, it's very efficient. Two in one. You know I still like this three in one coffee which people give me, because I can take that overseas, it's very easy to handle, and very easy to, I I shouldn't say that, please don't anybody get me some. Don't, otherwise I have so much I have to give it away. I've got plenty, plenty of supplies. But anyway, Anapanas- <laughs> come on, <jump> <laughs> <laughs> Anapanasati, <laughs> so it does both and already we said the first four is, you know the, it should be really the first three. You know when the in-breath and out-breath are long or short, you experience the hold of the breath, and you experience calming the breath as you breathe in and out. Don't try and make the breath calm, it happens naturally. Mm-hmm. Doing nothing is the best way to calm it. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> 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 so after you do that, that's actually called the first satipatthana. You're focusing on body. That's, because uh, uh, what you experience, uh, the breath which you are experiencing, you're experiencing as one of the components of this body, it's a thing. And you're experiencing it as the, through the bod sense of touch. I'll just combine the first two. When in-breath and out-breath are long, you're aware that they are long. Number two, when in-breath and out-breath are short, you're aware that they are short. I did mention that before, that what if they're neither long nor short, but kind of in the middle, which is the usual way. That's not included. So if you've got an ordinary breath in the middle, it's not long, it's not short, you're not doing Anapanasati. And sometimes people try and make the breath short, make the breath long. And that's just too much control freak. So that's the first four. And the next four, you learn to experience joy. That's a weak translation of pity as you breathe in and out. You learn to experience pleasure as you breathe out. That's Sukha. You learn, so that's those two first of all. You can combine them if you wish. Because all the time, when you're meditating, you can't divide pity and sukha, they always come together. There's only one place where you can experience one and not the other, and that's in the third yana. But anyway, what's happening here is you experience the delightful breath. Breathe in and out, oh, this is nice. Many of you have done that, if you haven't done it yet, you're going to get there for sure. You just relax and the breath becomes, oh, just so nice. It's really delightful. And as somebody said today, wonderful, it means you'd never feel that you have to do anapanasati, you have to do meditation. You want to do meditation, you look forward to it. It's just enjoyable. And to me, that was just so amazing that a spiritual path is really, really, really enjoyable. Because again, I remember remember just because I was brought up as a Christian, used to go to the church, there was no uh, upholstery on the pews. For a long time, there was no heating, It was this cold, uh, uninviting sort of church built, you know, a couple of hundred years before. And that was just, you know, the room. And the priest was even worse. If you don't go to, come here every week, you're going to go to hell. At least it's warm down there. <laughs> oh, sorry. There was this um, story, this uh, free thinker in Singapore... And his wife always wanted him to, you know, go to church or go to a mosque or just go somewhere you know, to do some good in his life. He was just into business, making money. And so when he really got sick, sort of, you know, he said to his wife, look, you know, I've had a reasonable life, I've never done any good in my whole life. I know where I'm going, so please put me in my coffin naked. His wife I said, look, I know that you don't like wasting anything in your life, but at least I can afford a suit for you when you die. And he said, no, naked. I don't want to waste anything. I know I'm going to go down where you don't need any clothes. And so, you no, know, she abided by her husband's last will. So he's buried naked actually not buried, but cremated. And then, a few days later, she woke up in her room and someone was knocking on the window. It was his ghost, totally naked. He said, wife, wife, have you still got that old um, golf jacket I used to wear and those trousers I used for gardening? He said, yes, can I have them please? Why, he said, I thought you went down to hell. You don't need clothing in hell. It's too hot. He said, yes, but I did go down to hell, but there's so many rich people down there, they've installed air conditioning. (laughs) (laughs) Someone enjoyed that joke. Anyway, (laughs) Adipadasati. And if I'm just really bubbly this afternoon, or even this morning telling lots of jokes and stuff, you know, it's nothing to do, I didn't have too much tea or coffee. (laughs) I'm just being honest with you, I had too much deep meditation. That really gets you going, lots and lots of energy. So, sorry about that, I'll try and do less meditation for tomorrow. Anyway, so you experience joy and, and pleasure, this delightful breath. And when you learn to experience the mental formation of this piti sukha as you breathe in and out, and when you learn to see this mental formation calm as you breathe in and out, on that occasion you are mindful of Vedana, having restrained the five hindrances, energised, fully aware of the purpose, and mindful. For being mindful of the pleasure associated with the stage of breath meditation, is being mindful of experience." Now, first of all, the pleasure of it. Again, it's wonderful to know that you can come to a temple and have lots of laughter and lots of joy, and it's not just superficial, it's very powerful and very deep. And that's you know, one of the things I really loved about Buddhism from the start. And every time I made a mistake, I think I mentioned this to you, that once I had to ask Ajahn Chah for some soap to use in the shower place, I'd run out. And you'd always have to ask it from Ajahn Chah. You know, he was, it's was only a small monastery then, he was the, uh, everything got given to him. And so he had this big water jar where, someone would offer him some requisites, he'd just dump them in there. So I needed some, some soap. What he would normally do was look in there and find some soap and just give it to you. But I had to ask in Thai. And the word for soap in Thai is sabu. I said sapo. Very close, I thought, but when he said sapo, what do you want sapo for? He said to wash, and that's where he burst out laughing, because the poem meant pineapple. <laughs> <laughs> I'd mispronounced it, and what he heard is that I wanted some pineapple to wash with. He never f- let me forget that. He would tell all the visitors, these people from England, they're so high class, they don't use soap like we do in Thailand, they're much more refined than that, they use pineapple. (laughs) And he would laugh so much. And I think I mentioned in one of the interviews, I always, because I was so stupid, and, and the Westerners were stupid as well, we gave so much laughter to Ajahn Chah, he never scolded us, said stupid, go and learn Thai properly. It was always laughter. I thought it was a wonderful response to stupidity. Someone just makes a big mistake. Laugh's Lasts very easy. You learn from that without feeling ashamed. Because he obviously does lots of meditation, and the pity Sukha was strong. So you will learn to experience the mental formation of Pity So, The first time I read that, I just went past that, didn't see it's important. This is how the mind is now experiencing the breath. You're experiencing it through a different sense store. You're not experiencing it as a feeling anymore. It's as a knowing, it's a strong mind sense. And that's where the beauty and delight come from what you're doing is you're turning on the mind. You are just uh, cultivating the mental awareness of the breath. And it's delicious. And I've said this many times before, if you get to that experience, just a delightful breath, you're hooked, I call it the pivot point of meditation. Once you're enjoying meditating, you'll just carry on sitting there, no effort, and the delight will get stronger and stronger until the next four stages of anapanasati arise. Number nine: when you learn to experience the jitta, Jitter is a pali word for mind. As you breathe in out. When you learn to brighten the nimitta, Sampasadana citta. It's an interesting word, Sampasadana means actually to bring faith, delight, joy, confidence you know, to this uh, nimitta, because that's real. When you first see nimittas, those lights in the mind, oh, what the heck is this? Is this me? Am I imagining this? What should I do? just leave it alone. Just be with it and when it's just there, after a while, it just stays with you and becomes a beautiful friend. It's the confidence to let go enough and realise that's all you need to do to have these images in the mind become really, really strong. And it's true, you may not have perfect understanding of Buddhism, you may not have great sila, your precepts may be a bit wonky, doesn't matter, there's always part of you which is really, really beautiful, you look at that and that sort of dominates and you get into wonderful nimittas. Another thing I'll say about these nimittas though, and I say this because uh, I mentioned it to a couple of people, but you haven't really responded, that one of the lights you should see in the nimitta, the colours, it doesn't matter which color it is, it can be all sorts of colors. The strangest color was this gentleman who had a black limiter. Not just black like no light at all, but black like coal. And it was was so beautifully black, more black than anything he'd ever seen in his life, like black satin, it was just so clear and so beautiful. And the other things he said about it made me very clear, yeah, that's a nimitta. I've never had a black nimitta, but it was more black than any black you could ever see. Not an ordinary black, a deep black, super black. And that's one of the signs it's a real nimitta, because the colour is like nothing you see in the world with your eyes, it's like more yellow than yellow, that's the best way you can describe it. Like a blue which you can never see on a painting, or even on the sky at sunset or in the early morning. Deeper than that. But really, you're seeing it. And to keep you interested, there's a few years ago, not this year or last year, maybe in the year before or the year before that, when I was meditating, I told all the monks about it afterwards, I had this really weird nimiter. I call it complicated nimitta. I knew it was a nimitta because it was yellow. And it was like a yellow which you can never see in the real world. It was really deep and powerful color. But it had a shape to it. And I recognized the shape straight away. Garfield the cat. <laughs> I've been reading too many cartoons in the newspaper. It's one of my favorite cartoons, Garfield. But anyway, I realized that straight away and I burst out laughing and that was the end of that meditation. <laughs> it was a real nimmer to that because the color was just nothing I could see in the world. <laughs> what I should have done was just go to a, one part of it which was beautiful. But those colors, what color was it? I don't care what color it is, but it's been intense color. Like nothing you can compare it to in the world. It's kind of blue, but more blue than blue more white than white, and that becomes experiencing the chitta. When you experience this jitta, this is the ninth stage of the Anapanasati, you're not watching the breath anymore. These lights in the mind are just way too powerful. You're still breathing in and out, but this is the result. The breath has done its job. It's taking you to the nimitta, so now the breath just uh, just is put aside for a while. Just the same as this was actually from the the Samanyapala Sutta. King Ajatasattu wanted to see the Buddha, so he went in a chariot to the bamboo grove and he went as far as a chariot could take him. To the bamboo grove, and he had to get out of the chariot and walk, you know, in his sandals, shoes, you know, to the hall in the bamboo grove. And he went as far as the shoes could take him, you know, into the into the uh, entrance to the hall. And he had to take the shoes off to enter the hall, and he went as far as his feet could take him, into the hall. And that's where he asked where the Buddha was. And then uh, his attendant, the uh, Ajivaka, the doctor, said, that one against the pillar facing east, that's the Lord Buddha. He had to use those different conveyances. Each could go only as far as it was allowed to take him. And then change the conveyance from the the chariot to the shoes, the shoes to the bare feet and the bare feet to take him into the hall. I use that simile because that's like meditation. You use the body awareness enough just to relax the body and then awareness of the breath to get even deeper into letting go of the body and close to the mind Then awareness in the mind, the jitter and then from the awareness of the jitter, you don't carry your shoes into the hall You leave the breath outside. And then, once you have the nimitta, then you can get the jhanas. Just one word about the jhanas. Uh, Nicholas knows I love saying this. It does give me goosebumps every time. Once you experience even a first jhana, the Buddha described it, the pleasure of it. He gave it a word, Sambodhisukha. Sambodhisukha, what does that mean? Enlightenment happiness. It's not enlightenment, but it's so close. The Buddha deigned to give it that word. You get a taste of what it's like to be enlightened. Enlightenment happiness just even in the first jhana, let alone what's to come. And every one of you are capable of experiencing that for yourself. Keep on meditating, almost guaranteed it will happen, you'll get a jhana. But sometimes saying exactly what it feels like, blows your mind. That's what we used to say in the sixties, blows your mind. I think that's the most accurate description that I can give. Anyway, so you learn to cut you. You learn to experience this nimitta, and then to brighten the nimitta, or bring joy to the chitta. I call it sometimes nimitta, call it chitta, because that's the nimitta is how you experience the mind, beautiful light. You learn to settle the nimitta, to still it. The word is samadhan chitta, because if you get uh, nimiters. if you ever experienced them, first of all, it may be a bit dull. You need to get it really bright, really bright. And just a word of warning, that sometimes, it happened to me, it happens to many, when you get nimiters coming up for the first time, they get incredibly bright. And sometimes I stopped, because I thought, I'll go blind watching something like this. You know, it's like brighter than the sun at noontime. And then I realized, you know, this is not actually using your eyes to see this. This is a mental experience, an emotional experience, it's just similar to a sun. You don't go blind at all. Yeah, I do have to wear glasses, but that's because of old age, not because of limiters. (laughs) So you, you then still that mind, make it perfectly still. There was a time here in Bodhinyana Monastery even, I remember this, I was wondering, how can you still this nimitta? The nimitta was bright, right in front of you, but it was always moving. Simple, but moving, it never stayed still. And then one morning, right as every, well as men do, you had to shave. So I was in the mirror, looking at my reflection in the mirror, shaving, were I allowed to look at a mirror to shave and also to do push-ups? <laughs> and just it kind of hit me that, you know, the image in the mirror was moving. And just to prove it to myself, I just held the mirror perfectly still with my hands, grasped it and tried to keep the mirror still, but the image in the mirror was still moving. And it was obvious. The image in the mirror was moving because I was moving. When I stopped moving, this idea of a, a watcher, just keeping like a like being a statue. When I stopped moving, and the image stopped moving, and that was my key. As strange as it was, I was really stupid. I should have figured that out beforehand. When I was meditating and stopped doing anything, stopped moving. Just was still like a statue. Then the Nimita became still. And the more still it becomes, the more it builds up the energy. The only simile which I could think of was holding a magnifying glass during a, a sunny day on a piece of paper. You keep moving the magnifying glass around, you don't get the effect of burning. You keep it perfectly still. And then the focus builds bring, uh, up a lot of heat, and it sets it alight. So that was the ninth, tenth, and eleventh stages of Anapanasati, and then the last twelfth stage. They call it Vimocha-yāng Jitang. And that's a word which means like free the the mind what it means in practice because they use that word or the noun form of that word, wimoka, as the experience of the jhanas. The 12 stages of anapanasati, you enter jhana. You can't help it, whether you want to or not. I love saying that because a lot of people say, well, it's a bit much for me. One of our members, he went to Sri Lanka and there was a teacher there who was a bit of a fraud and he was told by the teacher that he just attained to be a stream winner and he rang home to his wife, I'm a stream winner now and a week later the teacher told him, yeah, he's now a once returner so he told his wife and she was very happy that he's now a a once returner and then he rang his wife again another couple of weeks he became become a non-returner, the third stage of enlightenment. And that's when his wife got very fierce. You get on the next plane and come home straight away. I don't want you to get enlightened before you finish working to pay off the mortgage of a house. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't a, a, a non-returner or... Uh, anything like that, but just that's what his teacher had told him. And his wife, being here in Perth, never realised you know, what was going on. and was just got scared. He didn't mind him be coming in line, but not until he'd paid off all the debts. Otherwise, he'd be stuck with it. That's true. Anyway, the twelfth stage is you learn to enter the jhanas. As you, you should breathe in and out, but never actually says that you are watching the breath. On these occasions, you are mindful of the citta, having restrained the five hindrances, energized, fully aware of the purpose and mindfulness. And mindful. You know the third satipatthana, being aware of the mind. I just can't see how people who know the party, know the suttas, can never imagine you can do that without a jhana. You don't know what the mind is, what it's capable of. And even in the suttas they say, that mindful of the jitta means knowing one in jhana, not in jhanas. is a powerful, and I say you can do this, lay people do do this, you can do this, it doesn't matter woman or man, can I say something anecdotal though, it does seem This is anecdotal, that more lay women experience jhanas than lay men. This is just all the people I've taught over these years. And sometimes I wondered why. And One of the reasons why is to do this meditation, sometimes the men are too analytical. The the way into jhanas, into meditation, is much more, for use of a better, need of a better word, feely-feely, your emotions, and you have courage that those emotions are are, are important. The piti sukha, delightful breath, beautiful breath, whatever you wish to call it, and these powerful mind states of the nimittas, and how you can just love them, and just care for them, and be with them, without trying to control them. Of course, in that stereotyping, and mostly because of the cultures of our modern world, of women being carers and men being the doers. But nevertheless, so far, i found more females can get into the jhanas. But then the men catch up afterwards. Because after you've gone into the jhanas, the next stages of meditation are understanding what they mean. This is the vipassana, the the insight. And so it says here, where is it? Here we go. When... When you learn to explore... Anicca in breath meditation. What does anicca mean? Of course not. People always uh, feel that they know these things, and that's the reason why they don't fully understand them. Anicca impermanence, much deeper than that. Because anicca, it's like imagine you know you. are watching TV at home, and then the TV uh, program turns off. Is that aniture? That's superficial aniture. Imagine you're watching the TV, the TV program turns off, the screen is blank, but then the whole TV disappears. It just vanishes into nowhere. That's not covered by the warranty that's Anicca, when things which aren't supposed to disappear do. Things which have always been there. And the simile of the tadpole. You know, I've been a monk a long time now, so I have to make up similes. And these are similes which aren't in the suttas, but they're valid. Once there was a little tadpole in Singapore, and she was born in this pond, in the temple. She was a very clever little tadpole, so she went to the tadpole school, she graduated from the primary school, went to high school, did really well, she just loved chemistry, and so after graduating in the high school, in the pond, in the Singapore temple, then she. I went to the university in the pond. And there she graduated in hydrology. And sometimes she'd even listen to the monks in the temple, because that's one of the loudspeakers, talk about the meaning in the Abhidhamma of what water is. She became an expert on water. But how on earth could she know what water is? She was born in water, lived all her life in water, knew nothing except water, even though she studied it. Just her understanding was very conceptual. But the advantages of the little tadpole was that one day, to her surprise, when she started to mature, started actually to grow legs and arms. They weren't there at the beginning of her life, now she grew these appendages. She didn't know what they were. She was growing up. She was becoming a frog. And once she became a frog, one day she didn't really know what she was doing. She jumped out of the pond and now she was squatting on dry land. And that was like an experience she had never had before. Dry land, she'd only known being in water. That was weird. The advantages of being a frog, this was physical, so she couldn't just jump back again straight away. Many of you, when you see an imitator, you just go back to the breath or go back to, you know, what you know is real life, because you get afraid. Even though that maybe frog was a little afraid, but she couldn't jump back straight away, so she just stayed there in wonder. This thing called dry land. And if she was smart enough, she was a very smart little frog, she realized that something which had always been there, it had been there all the time, so she couldn't notice it. She could study it, but she didn't really know it, because it was always there, always around her. Now it was gone. Ah, now I understand what water was. It's anicca, it's not always there, inconstant. Now, like saying it's impermanent is you know, kind of okay, but for many people, impermanence means it just comes and goes, comes and goes, never it disappears for many minutes, many hours sometimes. So you experience in the first jhana, the five senses in the body, gone. Do you know what that feels like? For Most of you, you've had the body all your life, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> your body. Imagine what it must be like if the body just vanishes, you're still there, but the body is gone. Now you know what it means as the body being anicca. It's also the fact that, you know, once the body goes in deep meditation, you soon realize that that's where the pleasure of the first jhana comes from, being free of your body. That's especially, you know, when you get old. The Buddha said when he was old, that's the only time he could actually be free of the major part of suffering, the bodily feelings of suffering. And for any of you who have any sicknesses, irritations, multiple sclerosis or anything like that, imagine just actually being free of all of that for a while, totally free and blissed out. Wow, amazing. So anyway, that that is where you can understand what anature is. And I've said this before, but as you go deep in meditation, it's like you jump further and something else which has always been there is now gone. Your will. I've said this before, but that's an important thing to understand is Anicca. It's not always there. You can't always make choices. The buttons are no longer there, it's totally gone, vanished. No, profoundly gone. And Sometimes you feel you can't make choices because you're too dull or sleepy or whatever, but this is, you look around, you're perfectly awake and alert, but you can't do anything. You know you stop doing, you choose not to do anything, that shows the will is still there, you can choose. You can't choose. Weird, because you've never experienced that before. I try to describe that. That's what happens in the second Chana. Totally still, you don't move. You're like frozen, like a diamond. I don't say ice, because you know, ice is kind of nice, but a diamond is valuable, it's beautiful. The beauty of stillness, and you, you can't do anything. You're just until just uh, the aniture wears out, or the aniture actually does its job, and just things change again. But it's a very deep energy, a lot of things disappearing. And that's just the second jhana. I usually only go as far as that, because what goes afterwards is just the joy and happiness. Do you want to let go of the joy and happiness? Actually, the pity and sukha disappear, and in the fourth jhana, that pity sukha is supposed to have gone. But even the Buddha was inconsistent there. He said it's upekha, equanimity, but I don't like that translation anymore. I usually say contentment, because you know that contentment is delightful. Yeah, you don't want anything, but it's, it's lovely not to want anything, because you, you don't need anything. So this becomes the joy of the equanimity, what the Buddha called upekha sukha. It's happiness all the way. If you really want to know what happiness is. Sometimes I like challenging people. Who knows what happiness is? Who are the ones who indulge in happiness? (laughs) The meditating monks and nuns. That's why I love being a monk. (laughs) I indulge in the max. Anyway just going to say, this, I think it's over here. Okay, here it is. So, it's quoting from the Sutta here. It's one of my favorites. This is the Sampasadhana Sutta. He's talking to the monk Chunda, the Buddha. There are Chunda, these four kinds of life devoted to pleasure. I'm talking about pleasure now, not limiters. There are four kinds of life devoted to pleasure that are entirely conducive to repulsion, to fading away, cessation, peace, realisation, awakening to nibbana. What are these four ways, kinds of life, devoted to pleasure which lead to enlightenment? the four jhanas. So if devoters, devotees of other sects should say that the, Buddhas, the Buddhists are addicted to these four forms of pleasure seeking, they accuse you of just seeking pleasure, they should be told, yes, <laughs> I'm addicted to seeking pleasure. I love saying things like that, because I'm not supposed to say them. For they will be speaking correctly about you. Then some people might further ask you, what benefits can you expect from a life attached to these four forms of pleasure-seeking? You should reply, stream winning, once returning, non-returning, or full awakening. These are the benefits that you can expect from being attached to these four forms of pleasure seeking. You know I'll use that word expect carefully. Because you know, you know you can't really expect these jhanas to happen. If you expect them, you block them. But once those jhanas are there, because the causes are in place, it's a matter of time. And where is it said here? Yeah. This is from the Dharmapada, verse 372. There is no jhana for one without wisdom. There is no wisdom for one without jhana. For one who has both jhana and wisdom, they are in the presence of Nibbana. So said the Buddha. (laughs) Ah, <laughs> sadu, sadu. sadu. hee <laughs> hee.